much, Brad. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Cassie. My husband and I get to lead this community together. And I'm going to dive right on in because I have probably too much content for the time limit that I have today. And so I'm going to work to just get us started here and hopefully get us out on time at a reasonable hour. So uh, last week, if you were with us, you may know we pressed pause on our series, Come Holy Spirit. And the reason why is every single fall, we take take three Sundays to reorient ourselves around the vision and mission of Midtown Church, and that is to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. We say it every single Sunday at the very end of our service, and last week, Alex spent some time really unpacking what it's like to reveal the kingdom of Jesus, and today, I have the seemingly simple task of just doing one word, and that word's together which is actually not that easy. I think I got the hardest one. <laughs> and so today we're gonna look at what it looks like to follow Jesus together as a community. But before we even get there, I think I need to address some challenges because we face a lot of challenges to doing this whole thing together. And so I wanna look at these in the light of Jesus's teaching and see what we learn. So the first challenge when it comes to Gathering together as a body of believers who follow Jesus is church reputation. I can do Jesus, but not the church. This is a phrase that I've heard many people utter in a coffee shop, across from my dinner table, in the university that I work at, even people in this church. And this phrase has become a popular way to sum up a very legitimate and growing discontentment with the institutionalized religion of today. Whether it be politics, theology, church hurt, failed leaders, mean Christians, you fill in the blank, there's a lot of reasons to say, eh, I just don't know if I can do it with other people. And as potentially destructive as that is for my vocation as a pastor, I really do get it. I grew up in a family that helped plant three churches and only one of those churches still exists today. I'm well acquainted with church dysfunction, moral failure, church hurt, church pain. I've had every excuse in life to abandon the institution, to move towards a more private practice of religion, to wage more against the religious machine. And despite all of that pain and all of that hurt, the legitimate dysfunction of organized church through a very slow and painful process, I've come to a place where I still believe in it. I told you we were jumping right in. And I believe in the church, not because I have some sort of self-destructive tendency, I don't think, my counselor doesn't tell me that I do, uh, but, and I don't really have it because I'm a pastor, right, or because I chose to start a church, but I believe in the church simply because I know Jesus believed in it. And this is evident on all of the pages of scriptures, especially as I open the New Testament and I see what Jesus did on this earth. In the words of Tyler Staten, a pastor in Portland, or excuse, yeah, Portland, Oregon, he says this, for Jesus, the church was never optional. Jesus was not anti-institutional. He regularly led his disciples and himself into the church of the first century, which was the synagogue and the temple. 
Jesus immersed himself in the relationships at the temple. He went to the temple for prayer, and he added his own voice to the teaching of that temple. This is not to say that the temple or the synagogue was perfect in Jesus' day. In fact, it was far from it. Jesus and his disciples did not turn a blind eye to the corruption and the injustice that occurred. In fact, they consistently and willingly called it out. Jesus does this in the temple when he flips over tables in anger. He does this with the Pharisees as he rebukes them, right, for saying to his disciples, how dare you gather wheat on the Sabbath, Jesus was likely accused of being mean, rude, hostile, annoying towards the Pharisees and the Jewish elite. But notice, despite all of Jesus's woes against the synagogue and the temple, he doesn't boycott it. He doesn't protest it. He shows up. He continues to believe in and participate in institutionalized religion. Eugene Peterson writes this, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, gathered disciples in Galilee, worshiped in synagogues, ate meals in Bethany, went to a wedding in Cana, told stories in Jericho, prayed in Gethsemane, led a parade down the Mount of Olives, taught in the Jerusalem temple, was killed on a hill called Golgotha, and three days later had supper with Cleopas and his friend Adamaeus. We are not free to make up our own private spiritualities. And not only does Jesus participate in the institutionalized religion of his day, but as evidenced by that quote, he also participates in intimate Christian community. Jesus gathered 12 disciples around him, individuals who bridged every socioeconomic, ideological, political line that existed in ancient Israel. He called blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and zealots all to the same table, the same inner circle, and said, let's do life together. Let's become a family. And as beautiful as that is, right, for us sitting here all those years later to look at, that sounds really dysfunctional. There was a lot of conflict the disciples had to work through to do what Jesus asked them to do. And it's clear from the scriptures that the 12 disciples of Jesus were not perfect. They seldom got along or agreed, but that they did have one thing in common. And that was their pledge to follow Jesus. And this leads us to the second challenge that we face when it comes to doing life with other people in Christian community, and that is church conflict. Many decide to leave a church because of conflict that arises between them or another person in that church with a leader or even with a pastor. And although there are definitely moments, a lot of moments, where we should be confronting abusive leadership, injustice, challenging the treatment of other people, or even theology, there are also a lot of moments where there should be forgiveness, reconciliation, and the ability to agree to disagree. This is why we see these two tensions taking place in Jesus' teaching. Jesus instructs his disciples in Matthew chapter 7 to watch out for false prophets. 
wolves in sheep's clothing, while also giving them Matthew 18 and saying, this is how you do conflict resolution and arbitration. And when we dive even deeper into the early church, we don't just see a utopia where everyone got along, they held all things in common and gave to those who need, opened their homes and worshiped together. We still see that conflict the disciples experience among themselves with Jesus manifesting itself in the church. There are several areas of dysfunction that we see in the pages of the New Testament. Just to name a few things, and this is not even close to a complete list, we see segregation in the early church. We see incest. That's a pretty bad one. We see false teaching. We see cultural colonization. And we see the church regularly ignore the poor. We think the modern day church is unique. It's its dysfunction and its conflict. And the simple truth is that it's not. After translating the Bible into the paraphrase uh, called the message, Eugene Peterson wrote this. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. And I guess my question to you today is, are you looking for a successful or for a perfect church? Like, are you looking for a place where no conflict will arise, where you're in harmony with everyone? And hear my heart, that sounds really great. Like, I genuinely want that, right? But if that is you today, I'm really sorry to disappoint you, but that's not this church and that's not any church you will ever be a part of. And here's why. The fruit of the Spirit, right, that beautiful little song we sang in Sunday school, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, it's not grown abstractly. It's rooted in people and places. We can't grow in love unless we're in proximity to our enemies or people who are less loving to us. We can't grow in patience unless we're around people for whom patience is required. We can't grow in self-control by ignoring the anger or the annoyance or the frustration that's caused by the other people around us. Maturity is born of difference, diversity, and dare I even say, church conflict. And I think Jesus knew this when he gathered a very diverse group of people together, called them his disciples, instructed them to work together on behalf of his name, and then said, you are going to start what we know as the church. See, the dark side of abandoning the church or trying to do this Jesus stuff alone is this. When no one around you is shaping you towards the person of Christ, Christ ends up looking exactly like you. And I know and you know that that's not a Christ that anybody wants to follow. And that's why Jesus, without the church, just doesn't exist on the pages of Scripture. Could it be that Jesus still knows what he is doing? 
when he calls all different kinds of people together, rich, poor, young, old, conservative, liberal, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, into the real community of his church. One that is not idyllic, handpicked, or perfect, but one that will shape you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And this leads us to our last challenge when it comes to doing this whole Jesus thing together. And that's challenge three, complacency. We cannot be shaped by others if we don't show up. It really is that simple. National church statistics, for which this community probably accurately represents, states that on average people attend church 1.7 times a month. And here's the problem with this. You cannot be shaped by other people you cannot grow in the fruits of the Spirit in spiritual maturity by coming to church 12 to 20 times a year. You cannot become a concert pianist if you only practice 12 times a year. You cannot be a master rock climber if you only climb 12 times a year. You can't be a good parent if you rarely see your kids. You can't be a good boss if you only talk to your employees one time a month. You cannot experience transformation or be shaped by others if you rarely show up, if you're complacent. If we think, oh, I'll just go next week, right? Spiritual growth has to be a priority, and it almost always happens in the presence of others. I wish there was another way. <laughs> and look, I get it. There's a whole lot of competing things out there that are like so much fun, right? Like the Chiefs. I love the Chiefs, right? There's Sunday brunch. There's weekend trips, things that we love, right? But at the end of your life, 20, 30, 40 years from now, are those the things you're going to remember? Are those the things of eternal significance, the things that have shaped you into the person of Jesus Christ? There are a whole lot of challenges that we face to doing this whole Jesus thing together. But despite all those challenges, I still believe the church of Jesus Christ is worth fighting for. And man, is it a fight for all of the reasons I just listed and way more. This thing, right, the church, it's rooted in history grounded in the saints, practiced for centuries, the place in which miraculous healings, 180s, families restored, forgiveness extended, community transformed, the place where love embodied exists. That is worth it. The church is worth it. And so if you call this church your home, if you like to call this church your home, we want you to know what that means, right? Nobody likes to sign a contract without reading it, right? Nobody likes to commit to play an intramural sport without knowing how frequently the games are. Nobody wants to create some sort of project for someone, be commissioned for an art piece without knowing what they want, right? We want you to know what it means to be a part of this community and to do it with us. 
Throughout the scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, we see Jesus' followers associate familial language with the church itself. So just to name a few, the scripture we read earlier today from the very mouth of Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, Jesus said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, as a family loves each other. Galatians 6, verse 10, let us do good to everyone and specifically to those who are of the household of faith, our home. Ephesians 2, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are not that second cousin that showed up to that family reunion and doesn't know anybody, right? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, God's home. A quick note on family. Some of us have had the privilege to belong to wonderful biological families, while others of us, not so much. Some of us have more family than we could ever want or desire, while some of us have none or very little of it. And if that's your experience, either of those latter statements, I just want to say I'm, I'm so sorry. And I hope that despite the pain and the trauma that you may carry regarding your biological family, that you find the family you always wanted here, one that is for sure not perfect but one that hopefully is shaped by and will shape you towards the person of Christ. And thus, Christ's vision for the church is that we would learn to look like him together. This is family. This is the church. And so, with that said, what does it mean to be a part of this family? What's your role, right? How do you help the family function? How do you keep the family together and moving forward? Well, to do that here at Midtown Church, we've got five commitments that we just asked everybody to make who considers themselves a part of this family. And that first commitment is to reveal the kingdom of Jesus, right? This is the first step in committing to following Jesus together, which is why Alex spent a whole sermon on it last week. So if you want to learn more about what that's like to enter the kingdom of Jesus and to reveal his kingdom to all around you, go check that out online. But just a brief summary, the kingdom of Jesus is not simply declaring that Jesus is king of my heart, but king of my life. And that vision to bring God's kingdom to earth, that's the good news, that's the gospel. It's this upside-down kingdom, a new world order under the leadership of Jesus, and it's a kingdom that we were made to be a part of. Dallas Willard puts it this way, we are built to live in the kingdom of God. It is our natural habitat. So the first step to committing to this church is revealing the kingdom, or as Jesus puts it in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So first, we reveal the kingdom of Jesus together, and secondly, we belong to a microchurch. 
You know, we often get asked why we can't just call microchurches small groups. And let me ensure you there's an intentional reason why we don't call them that. Every week, we gather together around the bare essentials of church, prayer, scripture, and mission. And as we do this, we are making a theological distinction that, yes, even this very ordinary space is the church. We're convinced that praying with one another and reading the scriptures can change the way in which we live. They can help us reveal the kingdom of Jesus in a more powerful way. And the beautiful thing about microchurch is that when we commit to gathering with one another around those three things, community naturally happens. A family is formed. It emerges. But unlike other groups that you may have been a part of in the past, similarly, uh, or in the past, similarity or how well everybody gets along, that's not the reason that people gather week after week. That's not the thing that binds the group. Rather, the thing that binds us as a microchurch is our commitment to Jesus to praying prayers together, to reading his scripture, and to mission. And so just like the disciples, my hope is that we would be this messy bunch of people with varying beliefs, backgrounds, worldviews, but that we all come together time and time again in the midst of laughter and conflict to shape one another. And so here would be my encouragement to you today. If you're not a part of a microchurch, we'd love for you to join one. You can do so by joining our newcomer's lunch after church today or by just filling out a form online. But if you already are in a microchurch, I want you to reevaluate and even commit and say, this is my family. Because it is impossible to be a part of a community and be intentionally shaped by it if you do not participate and show up. We'd ask that you regularly attend unless there's something crazy that happens, that you'd work to give your microchurch leader a 24 hours notice, right? Nobody wants to host a dinner party and nobody shows up. We'd love for you to actively participate, to help with the meal, to host and to clean up, to have conversation with people, to welcome new people in, to pray with people, and to contribute to the discussion. And then some of you have just been hanging out in a microchurch for a long time. And there's like a pastoral bone in your body that's just ready to love, care, and serve other people. Alex and I would be kidding ourselves if we thought we could pastor more than 20 to 30 people at a time intentionally. And even that's a lot. And that's why we've got to have microchurch leaders, right? Who like genuinely care about their people, who lead them, right? Into the person of Jesus becoming more like him. So if you're interested in this, the best thing to do would be talk to your current microchurch leader. Our third commitment is this gather on Sunday. As much as we love and value microchurch, we still believe in the value of a Sunday rhythm. 
There's just something about gathering together, letting the voices of those around you carry you, hearing the stories of the people of God, being reminded of the teachings of Jesus, of being challenged to commit to a spiritual practice every week, of confessing with one another, and most importantly, gathering around the Lord's table to take communion with one another. These things form us, they shape us to be the sent people of God Monday through Saturday. And so we invite you to prioritize this as a rhythm. And look, we know life happens. We know you get sick. We know kids get sick. We know you travel. We know you take intentional time away with family and with friends. And if you've been around this church for any length of time, you know we deeply believe in rhythms of both work, but also rest, in Sabbath and sabbatical. Those things are very important to us. But we do ask that when you find yourself here in Kansas City, that you make it a committed rhythm because we really believe that showing up shapes us. For those of you who have work schedules that make it really difficult to be consistent on a Sunday, praise God for microchurches, right? <laughs> That's why we believe in them so much. The great missionary and Nobel laureate Albert Schweitzer, ooh, German names, reportedly said, do not let Sunday be taken from you. If your soul has no Sunday, it becomes an orphan. We simply ask that you prioritize Sundays because we don't want you to be an orphan. We don't want you to be a stranger. We don't want you to be an alien. We want you to be family. Our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our cousins. So we reveal the kingdom of Jesus. We belong to a microchurch. We gather on Sundays and then we serve. Jesus' teachings and the depiction of the early church in the New Testament are filled with instruction to us regarding service. Just to name a few, Mark chapter 10, verses 44 through 45 says this, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave to all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I see Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, right? As they're preparing for supper. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love... Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oof, that's a rebuke, right? <laughs> Jesus and his disciples instructed in and demonstrated service to both one another and to those around them. And this is why we desire to reclaim that word serve to mean more than just serving one another here at church to also mean serving our community in Kansas City. And so at Midtown Church, to serve is yes to serve one another, but also serve Kansas City. First, serving one another. 
at church, this church, at Midtown, we desire to be a place where few, many do few things instead of a few doing many things. Where few people, or excuse me, through, oh my word, I can't get this right. Where many people do a few things, there it is, instead of a few people doing many things. However, for many of you, based on maybe church experience, that has not been the practice. You've served on Sunday, and it's equated to an unsustainable practice, one that has come at a lot of spiritual and relational loss to your life. And so with that in mind, we want to make a commitment to you, and that is this. We promise to create an intentional but pared back Sunday gathering that is not unduly arduous or time consuming. And we also promise to care more about you as a person than what you can do for this community. And so here would be my request. Consider just serving one to two times a month. It does not need to be more than that. Consider serving the people that are sitting in this room those around you and just saying, I'm willing to help out with the chores one Sunday a month so you can come and sleep in. Second way that we serve is serving our community throughout the week. You know, service should always extend so much farther than these four walls, our microchurches, or any church space. At Midtown, we want to shift from a praxis that says only certain people or ministries are called to serve and love the poor, oppressed, and marginalized. We want to move to a praxis that says we are all called to do that. Jesus' teachings are actually pretty clear that serving the marginalized is a gospel mandate. To follow me, you must serve the poor. And although this is a learned heart posture, something that we work to learn week in and week out in response to this service, our microchurch spaces, and the people that are shaping us, right, all around us, it also sometimes has to start by simply trying something. And that's why we create a monthly serve opportunity with different organizations in our community. So past serve days have included Agape Pomoja work days that Alex was just talking about earlier. Easter brunch in which we serve uh, food at Synergy, a place where they serve at-risk teens. A Juneteenth block party with the Hope Center just down the street, our good friends. Uh, Teacher support and mentoring opportunities at Central High School just right down the road. More of those opportunities are going to be coming even in the next month. And so if you are not regularly engaging in work from your nine to five in which you are caring for and serving the poor and pressed and marginalized, I ask that you consider joining us once a month to do this. Because in putting feet to the thing that Jesus has called us to do, it slowly changes our life. It shapes us. And it means that our Monday through our Sunday becomes transformed. We see that person on the road or we see that need or we bring that meal over to the person that's sick more often because we've learned it. Commitment five is to be generous. We are descendants of an ancient church that has historically practiced a 10% tithe. 
And as participants in this community, we ask that you would work towards that 10%. Now, I don't say the following to like toot my own horn or be like, oh, look how great we are. But I don't want to ask you to do anything that Alex and I are not doing. So right now, here and now, if you wanted to go look at our finances, you could. You'd see we give 10% to the church and then well beyond that to missionaries, paraministries, and throughout our weeks in our service of meals to people, so on and so forth. And so I'm not asking you to do anything that we aren't trying to personally exercise ourselves and at times are weakened, but are growing stronger in every day. So my encouragement to you would be if you've never given before, just consider 1%. Like that is a great place to start. If you've regularly given 10%, maybe it's time to consider going above and beyond. And look, I am fully aware that this is the stickiest thing to ask for in the 21st century. Like the moment a pastor men like mentions money, it's like whew, breath out of the room, right? It sounds extremely self-serving coming from someone like me, right? Whose salary is funded by the generosity of you all week in and week out. I'm also aware that there's a whole lot of mistrust around churches and finances. More on that in a minute. But I'm also fully committed to practicing, living, and instructing in the life of Jesus. And when you read the scriptures, there is no doubt that Jesus is calling us to radical generosity far above and beyond even the 10% that was practiced in his day at the synagogue and the temple. This is why Jesus commends the woman when he says in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, Mark writes this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So he's watching people come to the temple and the synagogue giving their 10%. And Jesus saw many rich people throw large amounts of money in, potentially more than the 10% required of them. But... A poor widow came in and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this woman has put in more to the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, a hundred percent of her income all she had to live on in the offering. I don't know about you, but that's really challenging. This is why we pray that generosity prayer every single week, right? We're working to shape our hearts and our minds towards the person of Jesus and not the idol of money that man is probably the biggest competing God to us in 21st century American culture. May we work to be more like the widow who gave 100% of what she had than the rich person in this story who maybe gave 10%. My invitation today is that you would follow Jesus' call to live a radically generous life by just starting somewhere. Start with something and continue to work towards more significant measures of generosity. 
two brief side notes. I know that there's a lot of anxiety and fear and frustration and anger over the way that churches have managed their finances in the past or currently. Uh, And so we want you to know we practice full transparency when it comes to our finances here. We regularly publish our annual reports at the very beginning of the year. Our one from last year is available for you to look at right now. And if you ever have any questions, we'll open up our books and we'll show you what we brought in this month and what we spent to every single dollar. The second aside that I want to mention is this. We are on track as a church to have given $40,000 this year to church planning missions and to community needs, and that's incredible. For a church of 150 people, that is a type of generosity that I rarely see on a regular basis. So thank you. That deserves incredible celebration, and it's all because of you. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. You know, in life, I've learned that all great offers have unintended consequences, right? Alex and I were in Florida not too long ago, and we were at a resort, and there was a woman coming around trying to sell, like, the Grand Vacations Club, and so she was offering a four-night, five-day vacation stay for $250 total, and I was like, what's the catch, right? Like, what's the catch? And she was like, oh, you've got to attend this, like, hour-and-a-half info session. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. I know what the catch is, though, right? The consequence of a really great offer And the unintended consequence of following Jesus is that we have to do it with other people. (laughs) We've got to do it together. And I cannot promise you that this community will be perfect. In fact, I can actually promise you the opposite. (laughs) It'll be really messy. Alex and I will fail you. One of our leaders will fail you. You'll experience conflict with other people. You'll not like everyone. And sometimes you just won't have the energy for it. Really good pitch, right? Come to Midtown Church. But I can promise you that if you do commit to revealing Jesus's kingdom, belonging to a microchurch, gathering on Sunday, serving one another and this community, being generous, that you will be shaped, we will shape one another more towards the person of Christ. And here's how Alex and I see that transformation happening in our lives every day. On Wednesdays, we run home to clean, to put a meal on, to get ready for microchurch. And some days we have really long Wednesdays, right? And it's exhausting. It's like, oh, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. But we've never ended microchurch, put the dishes away in the dishwasher, cleaned up the countertops and thought that was a waste of time. Every single time the last person leaves, we're like, man, we're so refreshed. We're filled with joy. We may have tired bodies, but we have full hearts. Getting up for church at 8 a.m. is not my preferred sleeping schedule. <laughs> but the moment that I see each of our volunteers file in, that I see you all come, I'm just filled with joy. Because I'm reminded in this really hard life, I'm not doing it alone. Spending a Saturday morning working on an Agape Pomoja house and getting really, really, really dirty is not how I prefer to spend my Saturday morning. I am not really built for that, okay? If you don't know me. 
but the families that it's affected and more importantly, the things that those families have taught me has made a world of difference in my life. The way Alex and I manage our finances does not make sense to people. We've given up on the dream car, the biggest house, the vacation every month but it has consistently challenged the idol of money that grips my heart all the time. And it's provided for someone in need over and over and over again. And today my offer is to just simply join this community, knowing full well that together does not mean perfect, but it does mean transformation. And so if you are new here today, there's absolutely no pressure to sign the dotted line. But if this vision did compel you, we'd love for you to join us after church for our lunch. And if it didn't, we have so many incredible friends that lead churches in this area, and we would love to recommend you. Send them your way. But for those who have been a part of this Midtown community for maybe a few months or even a few years, I think it's easy to walk away from something like this with some sort of guilt or condemnation, and I really hope you know that is not my heart at all. But I do think it might be a challenge for some of you to say, I've got to like reevaluate and recommit what it means to belong to a church and to a family. If you're looking for a good place to spend 90 minutes on a Sunday with friendly people, decent coffee, you are so welcome to come here. There's no judgment, there's only love, there's only open arms, there's only a cup of coffee and a wonderful handshake and a, hey, how was your week? But I would not be doing my job well. (laughs) I wouldn't be following Jesus well if I did not warn you. Because you will not discover the church as a family, the family that Jesus talked about with half-hearted commitment. You will not discover the depths of rich relationship or the treasure that is life together. Observing a community by attending every month or so is not the same as being deeply committed to one another and the vision that Jesus has for his people. I want a community that knows the contours of my life because they're up close enough to observe it. I want a community that has known both my suffering and my victory. I want friendships that feel more like family than friends that break into my refrigerator, sleep on my couch, and ask if I can take them to the airport at 6 a.m. I want a community that challenges me to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly, more sacrificially, and more faithfully than I ever have before. That's why we started this church. It's what I want. But I can't want it for you. (laughs) No matter how hard I try, I can't want it for you. Our pastors can't want it for you. Our leadership team can't want it for you. You have to make the commitment. You are the one that has to want it. You have to know that Jesus really wants it for you too. And so this teaching is an invitation to simply just examine your commitment to Jesus and his church, to this family, and to ask the question, Jesus, what step do I need to take as I reveal your kingdom with other people? Let's pray.
Uh, Jesus, I'm convicted by some of the words I said today and your words, <laughs> even now. There are so many moments where I'm tempted to cancel, tempted to say I'm just too tired, <laughs> tempted to say I really would just like instead to be at home alone tonight. And I'm reminded, although rest is important, although family is important, that your community is so worth it. And it's the thing that my soul ultimately longs for. God, I pray today as your commitment has challenged us, as your disciples' commitment to one another has challenged us, Lord, we wouldn't walk away feeling defeated or frustrated or upset or guilty, but God, we would walk away feeling excited about the opportunity that we have to not be a stranger or an alien, but to be a part of an incredible family. One that is not perfect, but one that shapes us and makes us look more like you every single day. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.